right. Good evening. Thank you all for coming in today. My name is Susan. I'm with Washington State Department of Health. I've spoken with most of you, even the gentleman from Bothell. So I feel like we're all very well represented today. I um, really am thrilled to have you here because I'm very excited for you to listen to our podcast uh, host today. So this is uh, the host from Food Safety Talk. Here to talk about, um, goodness gracious, hockey, my guess, bathrooms, <laughs> toilets, um, and a lot of other things, and hopefully some questions that you have as well. So uh, we're going to leave it with Drs. Chapman and Schaffner, and they will lead us um, to the great food safety discussion. Um, when they are ready, we have a mic, so in case you are eager to share your questions with um, the doctors, then we will give you the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Um, so uh, we... We do, we do these things, you know, some of you might not have heard a podcast before, some of you might, uh, some of you might have heard our podcast. Um, we usually start these things just with like a little bit of introduction, get a sense of how many of you have listened to a podcast. So you, you, the uh, listener uh, uh, experience here in the room, um, so how many of you listen to podcasts regularly? Okay. Wait, 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 wait no, wait. no, 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 we got to, we got to, how many of you have ever heard of a thing <laughs> called a podcast, please raise your hand. Yeah, okay. All right. So, for, so, for, those so for, for those of you who are listening at home, everyone raise their hand. Okay, sorry. Yes, now, yeah, now yeah. continue. Okay, okay. So how many of you, so I, we already did the how many of you listen to podcasts regularly, but put your hands up for that one again. How many of you listen to our podcast before? All right. Not, not too many, so, so we've got some new people. So, here. yeah, so that's, that's roughly 50% of the, of the thousands and thousands, thousands of that are, people that are in, here. In, in front of yeah. Radio of the Mind. Yeah, yes. Theater of the Mind. Theater of the Mind. Theater of the Mind. It is. It <laughs> I'm is. I'm already off the script. Though. Here we go. Here we go. Um, so, um, for those of you who don't, don't listen to our podcast or any podcasts, um, my name's uh, Ben Chapman. I'm a professor at NC State University. And, um, this is, you are, if you're here in the room, you are listening to uh, food, safety pod, food Safety Talk podcast number 189. Um, so we, we do this every couple of weeks. Uh, Don and I, um, and well, Don can introduce himself uh, here in a second, but Don and I get together and we chat about food safety things that, that we're interested in, um, food safety things that are going on uh, in the world, uh, news, outbreaks, and more, more, more recently, probably over the last, um, I don't know, 20 or so episodes, we get a lot of questions from not food safety people, for the most part, from just like normal, regular people who have happened upon the podcast. And so we spend a lot of time answering those, those questions. Um, I uh, just like a little quick intro about me. I, I do uh, food safety in the realm of retail and food service and consumer stuff. Uh, I do a lot of communication and trying to figure out what's the best way to uh, tell people about risks so they might reduce those risks and um, do uh, research and, and extension and outreach in uh, weird places like farmers markets and school and community gardens and food pantries and um, uh, bourbon bars. Uh, talked a little bit about this on a podcast a while ago uh, trying to figure out about um, people that have uh, leaded uh, glass, uh, old antique glass um, uh, decanters, and what's the safety of that? Um, so I try to do like weird, weird stuff. But I'm the 
communication guy who's out there in restaurants. And, and then you, you're and, here. Well, too. and let, let's, and so one of the things is to give you an idea of those of you who are, who are not following everything we tweet on Twitter. Um, earlier this evening, uh, Ben walked into a bathroom um, as he does, you know, probably on a regular basis. Like I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to get in his business. I mean, like, like, maybe like three or four times a day. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Um, uh, and he, it was at the place where we were eating dinner tonight, um, and there were beer kegs, empty beer kegs uh, in, the, um, uh, in the bathroom. And uh, so he tweeted a picture of that. Uh, and he asked a question. There he goes. He's showing. For those of you who are who are not here, Ben is holding up his phone yes. and showing it to the people who are probably can't see his. Phone can't see. Yeah, it's just like a away. little black thing in my hand right now. Um, and so, I'll I'll describe. There are like uh, eight beer kegs that that are right, sort of close to a toilet. And what did you ask? I sent a tweet out before I left the restroom. Because <laughs> Twitter is all about real time information. Yeah, yeah. It's quick. Before I got back to the. Got back to the table, and I just said, can someone in the world of brewing tell me how kegs are cleaned and sanitized between fills? Because I was interested. I, I, I assume that that breweries uh, are worried about stuff like this, probably knowing that kegs get stored in weird spots and people do weird things. And then the hive mind of Twitter blew up over the last hour and a half, and I've had about 30 responses to it, and some really, really great ones. Uh, like, uh, well, you know, it's in the public realm. There's a, a guy named Glenn Hendricks, who, uh, according to his Twitter uh, page, is just a guy in Pueblo, Colorado, um, who did gave, like, five really, really great, like, inside baseball answers. And um, the reason is, as one of his tweets described, um, it's been a couple of decades since I worked at Coors. So he knew how, how kegs were clean and sanitized. But, yeah, we, uh, yeah. So I see stuff in, in everyday food safety things and I tweet about them and do Instagram and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, I've also do a lot of the same things that, that Ben does. I'm also have a cooperative extension mission. I also do uh, teaching um, to people in the food industry um, and we do research. The, the kind of research that we do in my lab is a little bit different than the research in, in what Ben does um, in his lab. We do a lot of uh, what I would describe as modeling and risk assessment. So we, we use math and statistics to describe uh, what goes on in the world and then try to use the, that math and those statistics to make sense of, of all of that. And, and, and like Ben, uh, we tell stories. Uh, we, we tell stories about risk and about risk management. And uh, we also do this podcast together. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we started this podcast. Uh, I usually get the date wrong, but let's say it was six or seven years ago now. Um, Don is, for those who are just getting audio of this, Don's nodding his head. Uh, we don't often see each other when we do this, so it's kind of like... <laughs> it's a little weird. It's a little weird. Maybe. And, and you notice, like, we're not really looking at each other? No. Because that, be, that would be a little weird. It would be like we'd ha we're having dinner, um, and we're just, like, looking across at each other. We, 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 we recorded a podcast a couple of weeks ago um, at the International Association for Food Protection annual meeting, and we sat at a table like this, so we're sitting at, like, an eight-foot school table, and we sat directly across from each other, which was just, it was odd. Um, but we had, it was a weird, it was a weird setup. Um, and so I did keep, like, looking longingly into Don's eyes as he was giving answers. Um, and, and it was, I mean, it was romantic. It was nice. It was a nice, yeah, we, we should have a nice moment. We should have had candles. It we should have had candles. Light. Yeah. Um, so so we, we started this podcast uh, uh, six or seven years ago um, at, 
at an uh, International Association for Food Protection meeting, actually. Um, and uh, you can, if you're interested in that, this is the first time you listen, listen to the podcast. Uh, it's chronicled, that, that recording is chronicled in episode zero um, on, our, on our website, foodsafetytalk.com. Uh, and, and that episode was just, it was really just 30 minutes of Don and I talking about how we got into food safety, and, and it was part of a StoryCorps, NPR StoryCorps project that, that never aired, unless maybe it aired in, in, uh, in somewhere here in, in Washington. I, I, That's I, why we have such a following here. Yeah, I, I, I don't think anybody was really interested except for us food safety nerds. Yeah. So. Um, and then at the end of that, Don had sort of said, hey, um, what we did was a podcast. Like, you know what that is? And I, I didn't know at all. And I said, I didn't, what are you talking about? Uh, and, and so he, uh, he gave me some recommendations of, of some podcasts to, to listen to. And, and maybe uh, three or four months later, we, we kind of jumped in and started doing this. And have you know, done it 180 or so times uh, since then. Um, and, and it really, uh, it, we, we, we say this, and we mentioned this to some folks that we met here in Washington um, a couple of times this week. We would do this probably without recording it. We would do it definitely. Well, we would still record it. We would still record it just for our for ourselves. But if no one listened, we'd still do it. it um, being able to find a colleague where we have common interests but come at food safety from two totally different angles is really, has been really, really valuable for me in my career. And just personally, it helps me look at things differently. Don's really helped. I'm, I'm here, we're, we're here um, teaching a, a workshop uh, to uh, a bunch of folks in, in public health uh, here in, in Washington State on retail HACCP, which is a like very exciting topic. Um, but a lot of what it is is like trying to gauge risk. And my um, my time hanging out with Don doing this podcast has helped me think about risk in a different way than I was doing uh, before. And and I you know I, I came at a lot of food safety things from a uh, a, a applied microbiology standpoint, not thinking about risk and the the math behind how we make decisions and, and how we make risk management uh, choices and, and all that kind of stuff. And so through this podcast, I've, that, that's been something that's been really, really valuable for me and really changed my outlook on how I'm doing extension and outreach and, and the research that I'm doing. Yeah, and so because Ben and I have such, such different interests, um, I, I don't I don't really follow too much of what he does unless he talks about it on the podcast. And he said to me some time ago, he said, so um, do you want to do a podcast in Seattle? And, and I said, yeah. And that was my right. answer. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Um, and he said, well, so uh, this is the week it's going to be. You get to pick the day. And I said, okay. So I, and I picked the day. And he said, oh, and by the way, um, there's a workshop that's going on. But you don't have to go to the workshop. It really, it's really all about having doing a podcast in Seattle. And I'm <laughs> like, this is really interesting. So, so I had the pleasure today of sitting in the workshop and watching Ben and his colleagues uh, teach what I think was really a, a really cool and interesting uh, workshop on how you manage food safety in a retail and food service setting. And so I, I have never, I mean, I see, I see Ben in action every couple of weeks on the podcast, right, doing, doing his Ben thing. But I have never seen him, and I've seen him present at meetings, 
Um, but I have never seen him teach a workshop, and you know, I, I don't want you to get a swelled head, but it was pretty good. I mean, oh. you did a pretty good job, and your people that were teaching were doing a pretty good job too. So I, uh, I'm, I was impressed before, but I'm, I'm, you know, you, you guys have all moved up a notch, you know, in my in my ranking. Oh, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know what to what to say. It's to make it, don't okay. be, don't be weird, Don. Don't keep, be, just don't keep, be awkward. Just keep, don't be just awkward. Keep, just keep doing what yeah. you're doing. No, thank, thank you. Uh, yeah, this uh, what, what we're here for. Um, is is this class that has a little bit of history for us in, in North Carolina, and I'll, I'll call out to um, to my colleagues, my my team, the the group that um, that's uh, here you know, with me teaching it. Um, uh, Veronica Bryant, who you know from the podcast as Noro Nerd. Um, so if you listen to the podcast, um, you know, call out. She's here uh, uh, in the back, um, and we might we might get her on the microphone at some at some point. Uh, but Veronica and I worked together over the last. Um, really around the same amount of time that we've been doing this podcast uh, to help answer some questions for regulators in, in our state around these things that people do in restaurants that are outside of the food code. And, and, and we, we both come at it, I think, in a very similar way, which is um, there's, a, there's a safe way to do this, and it, the answer shouldn't be, no, you can't do this. And what we want to do is help... Um, Regulators, state, local regulators all across the country um, look at these these issues in a, in a science-based way, um, and then help them in turn uh, transfer that information to the to the industry. And and by for those who are like not inside of our nerdy world of food safety, the food code is is a a, a law, well a rule that is it's not it, it's it's a model, it's a model, code. It's a model, it's a model code, code, but in cert, in some states it gets adopted by by reference, in some states it gets picked apart and little pieces of, of it are there. But it's a ba basically our framework of, uh, of how we manage uh, food, safe, food safety regulations in, in restaurants. And so there's things that you can do inside the code, and I'll use my Richard Fingers um, for that. Um, that's, so for those of you who don't listen to the podcast, this is like a thing that we do. Sorry, I'm like step out of this. Richard Fingers is like a reference to like Dick Fingers because when people do air quotes, there's like this thing on the internet of like dick fingers. So I don't, I don't even know how this, we just do it all the time. And so I thought I'd like explain it because people are like, what is, what are, what are you talking about Richard fingers? Um, so anyway, uh, inside. Well, and, by, and by dick fingers, you mean like, like Richard. Don't, like Richard. Because right? this is a, this is a PG podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't curse. Yeah. Don't, don't be a Richard. Um, I hope there's no one named Richard here. Uh, so uh, you could do a lot of stuff following the code, like cook a hamburger or make a sandwich or make a salad. But then there's a bunch of things that if you go to a restaurant and you see something like a sous vide ribeye that's cooked uh, you know, for uh, 16 hours to 130 degrees, the, the food code doesn't really give you a way to do that. And so what, what gets me kind of excited about that world is this messy part of how do you look at risks associated with that and then work with everyone who's in the community to say what's the safest way to, to do that. So that's what this course is was all about, and, and it's it's a fun. I, I'm uh, you know, very uh, happy that our, our hosts here in Washington State, um, Susan Shelton and, and her team and team team Washington uh, welcoming welcoming crew uh, invited us out to do this because uh, it's a it's a cool class that we get to teach. Cool. So you want to start the show? No, no. We'll just talk more about these things. Uh, yeah, let's start. Let's start the show. What what should we? Uh, what do you want? What do you want to talk about? What have you been watching on Netflix? What do you, so there, there is a, a, really, a really good show we've been watching. 
um, called Mum. Oh, so and for those of you that don't listen to the podcast, there's usually some of this non-food safety stuff. We gotta um, warm up. We gotta, yeah, we gotta, you know, we gotta do our, our vocal exercises. Yeah. Um, so this this uh, great British show called Mum, M U M, and it's it's very very cleverly done. I think I think we're watching it on BritBox, but it it's it's a British show. It's a comedy, um, and it's about a woman who the first episode you learn that her husband has just died, and she has kind of a weird family and extended family, and it's all about um, basically the, the first season. Uh, it's six episodes because it's, or yeah, first series as they say in, in the UK. Um, it's six episodes, and each episode takes place in a different month, and it's one day, almost a continuous shot of everything happening that day um, in this woman's life, and it tells a story like one day at a time of, of of what's going on in her life, and it was renewed for a second season, and the second season was the same thing, and it's one day out of one month in her life, and and just, just, just her like evolution from grieving from her from her husband's death and how she moves on. And the third um, season just just dropped, and it's completely different. They're now in a different location. They're not in her house anymore. They are in a manor in the English countryside where a family member has rented it. Um, and each episode is a day in their stay at this at this uh, oh, like manor. vacation week. Yeah, vacation yeah. week, and it's. It's just, it's very touching, it's very sweet, and it's very British, and uh, we've been enjoying it very much. Of course it is. It's good. So another running joke on Food Safety Talk is Don only watches British TV shows. Um, and which, The Wire. And The Wire, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, over and over. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I'll check out Mom. I I have not, uh, I really haven't been watching much of, uh, of anything. I have nothing nothing to add. You're not watching this. hockey? No, we got, there's no hockey right now. Wait, there's no hockey right no, now? No, we don't have, we have no oh, hockey. Oh, it's the summertime. Baseball sucks right now. Because um, the Toronto Blue Jays, my baseball team, are terrible. So, um, yeah, we, baseball in Canada? Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> one one place in Canada. I would, the yeah. So I'm I'm not even watching too many sports. But whatever. Um, let's let's talk let's talk food safety for food safety talk. Let's do it. Um, okay. So there's there's a few things that have like popped up in our um, in in our world of of food safety. So. Sometimes, for those of you who are new to the podcast or are here, maybe hearing us for the first time, I mentioned a little bit that we've got some, some listeners that send us some stuff, and we're, Don and I are fairly active on Twitter, um, maybe in, in spurts, uh, where we're a little bit active and then we're a little bit not active, but people do tweet at us um, sometimes. And so the first tweet that we got that I want to talk about is, um, this is uh, entitled for, for your uh, uh, benefit, Yuck from Dr. Freeze. Um, so this came from a friend of the friend of the podcast, friend of the show, Dr. Freeze, and this is uh, an article that came out in uh, Newsweek uh, on July 29th, and the headline is: More than 25% of delivery drivers say they taste customers' food. Study finds. So that's that's kind of gross. Um, so <laughs> so here's the. Uh, I'll read a little bit from the article. The study conducted by U.S. Food examined the habits of both delivery customers and drivers, it indicated a full 28% of delivery drivers have taken food, food from an order, and 54% confess they're often tempted by the smell of the food they're bringing to customers. So I read that paragraph, and I thought, we're, we're, we're like, 54% of people, like, thinking my food that I get delivered smells good is not a problem to me. Like, and, and I worry about the 46% of 
drivers that are not tempted. And I mean, and tempted is like a, you know, it's a weird thing if you look at, I, I wasn't able to access the study. I was only able to access the, like, uh, summary of the study. So I don't know how they asked the question, but, you know, um, it doesn't seem like news to me, like, um, hey, you ordered some food and your food smells good half the time. The 28% of people that are, that delivery drivers that are eating food out of someone's order, now we're in a situation that uh, I'm, I'm now interested in from a food safety standpoint. Um, not surprisingly, when asked, uh, when uh, customers were asked if they minded their driver, uh, took, if they minded that if their driver took a few fries, the average response was an 8.4 out of 10, with eight, one signifying, quote, no big deal, and 10 signifying absolutely unacceptable. So that doesn't surprise me, because I, I think if you ask me, you paid for some food, and someone's like maybe unwashed, grubby hands or in your food, I'm, I'm much more on the absolutely unacceptable side yeah. than, the, than the no big deal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, what are your... What are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's, it's kind of gross, but what, what, where, does, where does your food safety heart lie on this? Well, so I, I have to confess. So I'm interested in this topic for reasons that I will explain in a minute. Um, I am not interested from the point of view of a consumer because we don't use these delivery services in my house. I have, I've kind of thought about it, but then I'm like, you know, I should just drive there, right? I should just drive there. I should call them on the phone. I should drive there. I should get my food. Like a like a gentleman, like a grown-up person, and bring it back to my house and eat it, right? Like that's just that's just, I just I'm old. I'm sorry. I'm old. I don't. I I, I need to talk to I, some younger folks that use these services. Okay, but, I want to I want to so, dive in a little bit on this. Okay. So what what is it about? Like, do you feel you just feel good about driving there? I'm like, I'm you a, miss out on driving there. I'm I, I I like driving. It gives me a chance to listen to podcasts, Ben. I don't have right. enough time. All I got too many right. podcasts to listen to. So first of all, that. Um, and second of all. It's, I think it's a control thing. Like I, like so for example, there's a wonderful Thai place that's near our house. They're not open at lunch anymore, which kind of pisses me off for, for on the weekends because we like to get Thai food on the weekends um, for lunch. But we can get Thai food because uh, that's what we do. Um, we get Thai food for dinner. And they always say 20 minutes. And I'm always there within 15 minutes and the food is always ready. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not, I, I, I want, I want the freshest, yeah. hottest Thai food. A hot, hot, physical and and tempered and and spice wise, hottest Thai food, and I bring it back to my house, and I, I that's the best experience, right? So I really feel and and there's a there's a pizza place that we go to that does not do delivery. I go and I pick up the pizza. There's a place in the mall where we get we get uh, gyro salads and chicken salads. Um, don't be creepy. Um, Freehold Raceway Mall. Um, <laughs> a little bit off. Well, <laughs> see see Don there Saturday afternoon getting his. Gyro sandwiches. No, Saturday afternoon, probably not. But um, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. Um, uh, and I, I just, I want the best quality food. And to do that, I am not going to trust some person to deliver it to me. I mean, that's really honestly to me, it's it's more about quality. Now, now that I know that these people are eating my fries, if if I were to use them, I'm I'm less inclined. And I, this does remind me, there was a video that went viral of some delivery person that was captured on one of these doorbells, um, taking a drink out of a, a, a beverage um, prior to delivering. And that's just, that's just gross. I, mean, I, don't, I don't want that, right? Um, so, but back to the, or my earlier point. Um, so I'm currently working, for those of you that are regular listeners, you probably know this, I'm currently working um, with a committee uh, that is writing a document for the Conference for Food Protection. The Conference for Food Protection is a group that, that every two
two years, helps the FDA write the model food code. What this committee is doing is writing guidance for companies that sell food uh, over the internet uh, via mail order, so think like Blue Apron or Amazon Fresh, but also now uh, we're in, the, in this document, which is in its second revision, we're also dealing with third-party delivery services, so Instacart, Grubhub, DoorDash, things like that. Um, and one of the issues that we're talking about in our committee deliberations is tamper-resistant or tamper-proof packaging. And that, that is, in fact, one of the things that's mentioned in this U.S. food study is that, that this, this study and, and the interest in the, in the topic may drive uh, tamper-proof packaging, which I think is probably a good idea. I mean, it's probably, you know, it's, it's like, why do you lock your doors? It's not for the 99% of the people that are, that are um, not crooks. It's, it's 1% of people that are, that, are, that are crooks that you want to stop from getting in your house. So tamper-resistant packaging is just to stop those drivers that, that, that simply can't resist. But, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want somebody, like, I mean, I, they, you know, they're going to smell my food, and that's fine. I guess I can't stop them from smelling my food, but I don't want them touching it, right? Or, or, or yeah, and I just don't want that. That's gross. Yeah, no, ex exactly. And, and potentially, potentially, I mean, I real, and from a risk perspective, from a guy who looks at things from a risk perspective, it, it's, prob it's a little bit about risk because, Theoretically, they could tamper with your food. They could put something in there if they were a nefarious actor. Uh, they could contaminate it with bacteria. I'm less worried about that. But if they're if they're sick, right, they shouldn't be handling food. And if they are sick and they touch my French fries with their norovirus-laden fingers, I realize it's a small risk, but that is that is a risk. But mostly for me, though, it's about the yuck factor rather than any actual risk. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I uh, I did as you were talking. I was able to actually find it. Yep. Um, and you're looking yeah, at it. There's a, there's, a, there's a link. There's a link. Click yeah, but a link. I, yeah. click on the, I didn't click on the link. Um, and so one of the things in here, and I don't think you just said this, but they asked, would you like restaurants to use tamper evidence uh, uh, labels to address this issue to customers? And 85% said yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No brainer. No, no brainer. Just like the, the kegs of beer that, uh, that were in the bathroom. One of the responders said uh, on Twitter said, uh, hey, there's uh, tamper proof uh, things caps on them. So it's unlikely that you're going to be able to, to see. But to take it back to the Twitter conversation, I am much more interested though. Let's say, let's say Ben, you walked into that bathroom and you were sick with norovirus right. and you vomited, right? Well, now um, that norovirus goes all through that bathroom. It gets on the, the outside of those kegs. The beer is going to be fine, but the outside of the kegs is what I'm worried about because now some, some drunk frat boy comes over and he gets this this keg, this has now been refilled with clean sanitary beer, but it's still got your norovirus on the outside, right? And he puts his hand on the, the, the keg, and then he gets some beer on his hands, and he wants the beer, so he licks his fingers. I don't know, some some disgusting frat boy story, right? Um, and uh, and now he's got now he's now vomiting he's the next day, and it's not from the beer; it's from your norovirus. See, there, so. you, there you go. It's good. This is yep. but 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 one of our our very kind and gracious Twitter uh, followers uh, or or, or uh, followers of retweeters basically said they wash the outside, right? They wash the outside with high-pressure hoses, which I'm not really thrilled with, but that's soapy water, and that's probably going to mitigate that norovirus. Right, 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 right. All right, so I want to go to um, uh, an article that was in the New York Times uh, this weekend um, about an outbreak that actually happened, a little local, you know, local content, because um, this is what you do when you're, when you're on uh, tour, right, like, like we are. You got to play to the local, right. local folks, right? Um, so, uh, and by tour, I mean with one-off podcasts here in Washington. Uh, so there's there was an outbreak in in 2015, um, uh, an uh, outbreak of um, salmonella, 
and it was um, a, uh, a serotype of salmonella that was kind of, um, kind of special, not seen a whole lot in this region. And so for the listeners following along at home, this is salmonella serotype I, 4, 5, 12, I, negative. Um, and it, it's a serotype that's, um, that is, well, you know, according to MMWR, the fifth most frequently reported salmonella serotype in the United States, but uncommon in Washington. And so in 2015, there were 22 clusters uh, of this. Uh, that's a weird way to, to write this. Anyway, there's a bunch of illnesses. Um, and uh, they ended up, the investigators ended up linking this to pork. And so I'm um, just reading from the original uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report. Uh, among, and this is what I, I go to, I'm always interested in, okay, what's the, how do people get sick? Well, among the 21 interviewed patients, um, or there was a bunch, sorry, let me go back. There were 59 patients who were inter interviewed uh, who ate pork. Um, there were a bunch of people, 21, who didn't eat pork but did have this serotype. Well, didn't didn't report eating pork. Didn't report consuming pork before becoming ill, yes. But 13 of those had eaten at one or two restaurants uh, that were associated with this uh, with this outbreak. And so um, inspections, uh, and we're, we're here in, uh, in King County, and so this is really local because we're talking public health, Seattle, King County uh, investigation. Um, Looked at three facilities, identified opportunities for cross-contamination of raw pork with other meat and produce, including adequate employee hand-washing, insufficient cleaning, sanitizing, sanitization of food contact surfaces, and utensils uh, uh, used for raw meat. And so there was also a bunch of sampling that happened, and all three food and environmental samples at all three facilities they looked at uh, yielded the outbreak strain. So, so we had a, a, you know, a, an outbreak that you know, linked to pork and some food handling uh, you know, was, the, was an issue. And some of the other people that got sick went to um, like pig roasts or uh, you know, had, had purchased a, a log and, and then um, uh, you know, prepared those at home. And so the, the New York Times article that uh, you know, four years later kind of looked at uh, going through some of the, um, uh, you know, I, I guess through a Freedom of Information Act request, looked at emails back and forth, sort of uh, really focused on um, farms. Uh, you know, that was really the, the, the issue. And I think that the article really had to do with um, focusing on um, antibiotic resistance of this, this strain, making it you know, difficult to treat. Um, and, and there was a couple things that, that stood out um, in this for me. And so I actually tweeted about this um, on my way here. And one, one quote here was from a, a producer, uh, David uh, Hofer, uh, who is the secretary treasurer of the Midway Hutterite Colony, a religious community that runs a hog farm in Conrad, Man uh, Montana. Um, and he said he, his farm was, uh, he, he was in the community of farms that were investigated, but his, he was one of the farmers who objected to farm inspections during the outbreak as it got traced back. And the quote that he had was, quote, they might have public health in mind, but they don't care in the process, they break you, you know, meaning the, the producer that, that's associated. And so I, I tweeted a little bit about this and with, with my thoughts, which, which are um, in, a, in an outbreak situation where you've got a, you know, multiple people sick, and this is really notable, we 
you know, investigators have linked this to a st specific type of food, and now we're going back through a traceback investigation, getting back to a farm. We're really trying to find all of the potential breakdowns in the food system, and and that's the it's the duty of a public health investigator to do that, right? Like, not not to make any decisions on what we do going forward, but we really have to put the pieces of this of this puzzle together. And so, so my my initial thought on this was I. I think we talk a whole lot about farm-to-fork food safety systems, and we talk about risk-based, but there aren't, there are more situations like this where there's a lot of finger-pointing and, and stay away from my system, but maybe this is about preparation in a restaurant or in a home, uh, that really breaks down, like, like we, there's a lot of rhetoric, but not a lot of like, yeah, we're all really, this is, food safety isn't, when it comes to an outbreak, it's often not a shared responsibility, even though we talk about it that way. And so that was the first thing I thought about. Yeah. So, so I, one of the things that interested me about this, and, and I, so I, I like, I listened, I, I listened to, I, I, I read the New York Times article, um, I tweeted about it, I, I linked in uh, Bill Marler, who's a well-known um, lawyer here in Washington State, and within fairly short amount of time of the New York Times article coming out, uh, Bill had an article on his blog, um, which we will also link to in, in show notes. And he, he represented the, the Porter family. And one of the things that was interesting to me was, was the, 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 the woman, the girl that was, uh, yeah, sorry, girl, she's 10, 10, 10 years old, um, who was, is kind of the lead of the New York Times story. And, and so uh, basically what, uh, what I think Bill says story is that um, uh, on June 27th, Rose Porter, that's the mom, picked up a whole hog from Stewart's Meats in McKenna, Washington. The next day, Rose cooked the pig just the way she was told to by Stewart's. And I was really interested in, like, what were those cooking directions, right? Like, in this, so yes, there's a the whole big picture, but I, I'm just sort of focusing on, like, why did this girl get sick? And it turns out that the directions that were given to the mom were not in writing, okay? And I went to, I went to the, the website for this, for this uh, Stewart's Meats, and they, they do sell whole cooked and whole uh, uncooked hogs. No cooking directions on their website. Um, but, uh, but, but the directions were not written, and they did not specify an end product temperature, right? And so I have to ask, you know, is that really a good direction? And I did, I did Google a little bit to find out how you cook a pig, how you roast a pig, and there was a good website that I found that did specify a temperature. But man, it is a complicated, involved process. You have to start really early. You, 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 put, you put a lot of wood. Um, you have to build a rack for, for uh, rotating the pig. A spit, rather. Um, you have to let the wood burn down. You have to be able to control the level of the of the, the carcass above the, 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 the heat. Um, you have to roast it for a long time. I mean, in this particular uh, uh, website that I found, it was like 12 hours to cook, depending on the size of your hog. Um, uh, and then and then it did specify at the end. It did specify a temperature. And what I, what that says to me is like, wow, how can I like buy a hog that's already cooked? Because yeah. I sure don't want to spend a whole day doing that. I know the people that love to do it. That's 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 great. But this this is this is not a cooking process for the faint of heart, right? This is this is a complicated, well engineered process that you really have to pay attention to. Um, so that that was kind of my sort of initial reaction and, and, and what intrigued me was like, why did this particular girl get sick and, and what could we have done to fix it? Mm. Yeah, well, and, and 
the complicating aspect of that cooking process, and I think about it even even with with restaurants, you're dealing with a pig carcass, right? So think about the difference between cross-contamination potential when you're hauling around like 300, 200 pounds of pig or whatever, whatever it is that you're that you're dealing with, and maybe putting it down on a on a prep table um, versus I'm bringing in already pre-cut portions of pig that are much smaller uh, and and dealing with that. And so looking at the MMWR uh, report with that kind of lens, um, you know, you've got this pork situation, you have a, maybe a complicated cooking process. And, and, and it, what, I remember we talked about this outbreak when it happened, and I remember talking about it with someone at, uh, at IAFP, and I, I still don't know, and, and this is why I think the, the farm and processing world, like well before, um, the uh, preparation. There's some factor here that's special about these specific pigs or this specific um, uh, 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 food chain, uh, because the way that we cook pigs really hasn't changed. You know, the, this the, I think that people are, that are cooking pigs are cooking pigs maybe more. You know, they're frequently like if we, it's probably some sort of like normal distribution of what we can expect that people will um, how they'll cook it. But there's something special about this this food supply chain that had either more salmonella, um, a, a, this strain, a specific strain of salmonella was particularly virulent, um, something related to uh, maybe more hardy in the environment leading to cross-contamination. There's some other factor here that's not just about not cooking or not handling it because we don't see outbreaks like this all the time. So, so you know, going back to that quote, it, it's not, I, I don't want, I, I think that people get really antsy in an outbreak situation where fingers are pointed at them, but they're, everyone here is part of this change. Like, we got to figure out what was special about it. And maybe it was an on-farm issue. Maybe it was an on-farm issue and some breakdowns at processing. And then some food handling breakdowns. But but something was special because we don't see outbreaks like this all the time. Right. And if you look at, going back to the MMWR article, if you look at the, the outbreak curve, it starts with the first case on April 25th. It ends with the last case uh, the first week of October. Um, and then there's a giant, there's a peak in June, middle of June. There's a peak in, in mid to late July. Um, and the other interesting thing is it's, it is this uh, Salmonella I four comma open a square bracket five close square bracket comma negative 12 colon I colon minus, niner, okay, you niner, said it wrong before. Niner. <clears throat> um, uh, or, or, this is the punchline, Salmonella infantis, which is a different strain of Salmonella, which is somehow, they, they've decided to make part of the same outbreak. And yeah, so there, so we still don't know, right? We don't know, um, we don't know why this particular pattern happened. We don't know why there were peaks in June, July, and August. Maybe it was warmer. Maybe there's something about the, the source of the hogs. Maybe, and again, it would be really interesting to know for each of those cases, you know, how many came from, and a, a lot of them did apparently come from the Stewart's Meats place, um, but, but some came from other places. And of course, Stewart's Meats was just the processor. The hogs were sourced from a variety of hog farms. Right, right. So there's just a lot that we don't, we don't know. And it sounds like, um, you know, based on the New York Times article, we just may never know because we just don't we just don't have access to that data. Yeah, and there and there's some, something special uh, about it, but we we we're not being able to uh, 
put our finger on exactly what. And this, and this is, you know, for, for those who are, um, who follow outbreaks, that's, that's kind of the way it goes. Sometimes it's really unlikely that we find all of the smoking gun, like, parts and, and be able to trace it back to the, to the source and figure out what went wrong, right? Like here, at least we got back to a source. We, 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 yeah, as you said, we may never know what, what to change. Yeah, well, and so, and let me read, this is a particularly striking bit that I don't completely understand. Um, uh, this is from reading from the New York Times article. Uh, Dr. Lindquist, the epidemiologist leading the investigation of the Washington outbreak, pleaded with Montana's health agency to help him gain access to the farms that had supplied the Kapowson slaughterhouse. Okay, so a lot of the cases were traced back to that. Um, uh, days, and I'll skip a paragraph. Days later, he received a phone call from Dr. Liz Wagstrom, the chief veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council, a group that lobbies on behalf of the livestock industry, its campaign donations, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, Dr. Wagstrom, yeah, whatever. It's, right, right, it's yeah, Washington. Yeah. We can talk about that another time. Uh, uh, Dr. Wagstrom sought to find out what Dr. Lindquist had learned in his investigation and what he was trying to say to the media. Uh, he said she was worried the pig farmers might be unfairly tarnished, arguing that salmonella was common. And we hear this a lot, right? Salmonella was common on farms, so an investigation wouldn't prove anything, even if the infection was detected. And yes, and this is this has been the and again, you know, we I, I, uh, I often get tagged as being somebody who is in defense of the industry, um, and I, you know, and I'll argue for the industry if I think they're right. But in this case, I pretending that there shouldn't be, or saying there shouldn't be investigations, because we know that's, that salmonella is found in the intestinal tract of animals, including pigs. Um, you know, I mean, the industry, this is a concern of the industry, and I've heard them raise this again and again over the years, but in the long run, it would be, I think, it would be better if we could have gone to those farms and done that investigation to try to figure out, like, like we don't have, it's not like there's a baseline, there's probably a baseline level of this organism, there was a peak, and there's a reason why there's a peak. And if we can't learn about that, then we'll, we'll be repeating it, right? Right, right, right. And, we're, and by cutting out uh, an entire section, that starting point of that food chain, um, we'll, we'll never be able to answer the, the question. Yeah, Dr. Wagstrom said, what would you learn that could positively impact public health? Well, we wouldn't know until we did the investigation, right? right? Maybe, I mean, maybe nothing, maybe something. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah there, there's another, one, one other... Uh, Part. And I thought the New York Times did a good job uh, on this on this article, kind of showing the complexity of what happens during an outbreak. Um, and so there's another passage in here that says the Montana, Montana Pork Producers Council wrote to the Washington Health Agency saying, quote, it was clear that there is little to no value conducting these on-farm investigations and that investigators should focus on slaughterhouses. It's like, well, and we're reading this a little bit out of context. We don't get to see everything. But a passage like that, you know, what, what, what makes you arrive at that. And, and again, um, it, it just it just seems odd. And I think that's the, you know, that was the point of the New York Times article. Um, so, so I appreciate, you know, having this and actually not just on Twitter, but I had some other folks that aren't food safety people send this to me, um, you know, people in my department be like, hey, did you see this? And so gaining the, uh, piquing the interest of the public beyond just our nerdy little world is, is always a good thing for, for food safety. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and the so the, the the New York Times headline is "Tainted Pork Ill Consumers and an Investigation Thwarts," which is a, it's a reasonable headline. The next line is "Drug-resistant infections from food are growing." Well, okay, and yes, this was a multiple antibiotic-resistant strain, but I think that's kind of beside the point. Maybe it made it hard to treat. 
the more important point is whether it was antibiotic resistant or not. It caused a big outbreak, right, right, which right. would have happened whether it was multi-antibiotic resistant or not, right? So, so to me, the the antibiotic angle is less interesting than than the investigation. Angle. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to segue off of this. Uh, and when you said antibiotic, uh, reminded me of a situation this weekend. Uh, I was eating at a restaurant in the Washington D.C. area with my family, and my child, uh, who is 10, ordered. Um, antibiotic chicken uh, off the menu. Cause, and then he said, oh, no, sorry. I'll have the antibiotic, antibiotic and hormone-free chicken, please. Uh, and that was what was listed on the, uh, on the menu. So, so the, uh, you know, the, the point being, antibiotic and why that's in that, that tagline is it is something that's not well understood. It does seem really scary. I mean, it is scary. Antibiotic resistance is not a, not a good thing for, for any of us. Um, as, and it's not well understood. It's just like, you know, microbiology isn't, isn't well understood. But it makes for a good, good headline. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so I want to go, uh, since we're here in Washington, I want to I wanna go to some questions from people that are from Washington. Let's do it. All right. So um, we, were, we were primed with a few, with a few questions uh, from, from folks that may or may not be here. Um, they, they have been fully uh, aware of, the fact that we give people names that all start with D. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to start with a question that, that I think is near and dear to our heart. Um, and this is uh, question number one from Deep Holstein. Um, the question is, Washington State allows retail sale of packaged raw milk, but does not allow it to be served or used as, as an ingredient in Washington restaurants. What are your thoughts, Don? It doesn't say that part, but that's where I'm going to go. Uh, on the retail sale or service of raw milk in a licensed food establishment, how about raw milk as a source for donated foods? That's a lot That's of questions one there. Yeah. So I think I think our opinions on raw milk are are pretty well established uh, if you listen to the podcast. Um, but just to recap, um, I think uh, Ben and I are both uh, raw milk libertarians. Um, we think that people should be able to consume raw milk if they want to. Um, uh, I don't think it's a good idea for people to give it to their kids. But if you are an informed adult consumer and, well, you, you can smoke weed here in Washington, right? Uh, you should be able to buy raw milk. I'm, I'm fine with all of it. You can, you can marry somebody the same sex. I'm fine with all of yeah, it. Not to put all those things together, but they're kind of all together, right? Um, they're like things that we should allow people to do if they want, right? Right, right. Um, but uh, I, I get the angle of not wanting to use it in an ingredient because then it becomes a little bit more complicated. Like I, for sure, if I'm going to buy uh, uh, ice cream uh, at a fancy restaurant, um, I want to know if it's raw milk ice cream because I might, I might decline that, right? Um, and I might not have a way to know that. And well, with, with and, it, like within the regulatory world. Let's hope that one would because uh -huh. it would appear as a. Uh, warning, like you, like sunny side up eggs or, or rare burgers, right? Um, well, but, I'm, but I'm not sure. Well, and, and on that, you know, we one of the research projects that, that my group did a while ago was about how well consumer advisories are communicated by servers, and whether it's good risk communication. And so the quick answer is, consumer advisories uh, on menus are not good risk communication. They weren't really built that way as a as a way to like let people know about it and then change their behavior. They're not well well noticed. Um, and then, But the second more interesting part was when we engaged in conversations with servers, then I'll translate this to raw milk. Um, we did it around uh, undercooked hamburgers, 
But when we ask servers about, you know, hey, um, I'm going to get this, this rare hamburger, is it safe to eat? They would say, oh, well, I know, and I'll paraphrase, you know, 250 of these conversations. We grind it ourselves, Ben. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, USDA made it illegal for E. coli in, in beef. We grind it ourselves. Don't worry about it. Um, it. We have to say that on the menu because of the law, but you're not going to get sick from our stuff, like all of the things that you would you would expect. Not 100% of the time, but into the 80% of the time, that's that's what we heard. So um, I think, I, I agree. I think the, the situation here, consuming it, buying it in retail in a packaged form is a little bit different than the um, how it would get communicated and the responsibility and where we place that responsibility uh, of communicating those risks to a, a server that doesn't maybe have training on how to do that. So I'd rather just be like, all right, let's regulate the sale of it. And, and as, as Don mentioned, we, we both kind of align on, on this where um, I, I, I think that people are going to drink raw milk and doing it in a way that's safe is better than doing it on the black market, which is how it is in, in my state. Um, my state too. It, yeah. And so, um, so that's you know, where, where, where we kind of land on it. But um, so the last question here, or last part of the question is, how about raw milk as a source for donated food? And, and I, so here's where, um, here, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump on this one first. Um, if someone wants, if we can convey the risk to someone and they know the difference between raw milk and pasteurized milk, and we can effectively make that, uh, make that clear and, and know that, they, that, that there's a, an understanding of that, um, I'm fine with that. What I'm worried about is if we look at donated foods and and I'm, I need to get milk you know, as a staple, I need it for um, you know, health of, of my family, and, and I have, and there's not pasteurized milk that's there, I'm going to get milk, and I don't really have a choice around that risk in, in, in certain situations. And that bothers me. That, you know, I think when it comes to drinking raw milk, as the libertarian side of things of us pops out, it's about choice. And now we may be in a situation where that's all that's available, and I don't like that that situation. Yeah, and, and I think that people who um, can't afford food, um, that probably also puts them into several other risk categories, and I I would just worry about about that. Now, if if somebody that uh, provides food uh, to people, um, you know, for free for people that can't afford food. If they want to source raw milk and pasteurize it correctly and then provide it to their clients, that's fine. But I, I really, I, I worry about that we're, we create this, this tier of food for people that can't afford it that's maybe potentially riskier. I, I just don't think that's fair. So that's, that's kind of where I come down on that. And that, and that that's, that's part of the, my argument against yep. it. Yep. Well, and that segues into another great question here uh, from, from another uh, listener. Welcome to Washington. Uh, this is uh, from uh, Deep Food Waste. Um, so the question is, food waste and, and food insecurity are concerns in our state. Uh, do you believe food for donation should be held to the same food safety standards as other food in the food code, such as food donation organizations having the same requirements for date marking, discard, bare hand contact, uh, prohibition? Uh, oh, never mind. That is, it's not just prohibition. It's bare hand contact prohibition. Uh, salvage source restrictions such as wild game meat or food from uh, self-service bars or uh, permitting enforcement. So I think that 
food that is donated should be held to the same food safety standards or should be as safe as food that is not donated. Um, there's a long laundry, laundry list of things that, that deal with the food code in there. I'm not sure. I mean, the food code is great. I, I love the food code. <laughs> many, many people many are saying, people are that, saying you, that you love the food code. Um, <laughs> the audience is not laughing I at love the political food. humor. I love the food code. <laughs> I think that's what you meant. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, but the food code is not perfect, Ben. I don't know if you know this. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not sure that all of those prohibitions are necessarily making food safer, right? And, and we could dive into each of those, and it would probably be a, a whole podcast in, in and of itself. In principle, I agree that the food, donated food should be no riskier. Arguing about or deciding what, what that level of risk is and how to establish equivalence more complicated discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I agree 100%. I think um, the the more nuanced part of that question is, okay, so what if we get close to the state marketing issue? What is it that we're worried about? Let's make an evaluation on the food. It's not as simple as date marking discard. It's let's look at what it is. And then how can we make that food safe uh, or you know, equivalent safety? And then the wild game meat is, as well as... Uh, you know, is, uh, as uh, a situation there. So, um, and I know here, in, after talking with some folks um, yesterday, it, here in Washington, there it, it's a little bit interesting on how um, food pantries and food banks are are in the regulatory world, a, you know, a little bit, but not following the food code. But it's uh, yeah. So I I see the sort of conundrum of the uh, of the question, and and I think that having and this is something where I'm going to put a like push out to um, Cooperative Extension and um, other food safety educators that, that exist in, uh, across the U.S., working with someone who's working with these individuals from an educational program base, making, helping them make decisions. So it's not a regulatory issue, but creating good standard operating procedures and, and working with them to, to employ that. I'm, I, I think that's a better, better approach because we, we talked in the last podcast about some of the challenges on volunteer food recovery and, and food, uh, you know, moving foods around. Um, and, and all of, you know, uh, when we look at um, food, food donations, it's largely a, a volunteer run, run, run process. Yeah. Um, I want to take one more from this list, and I think we should probably open it up to yep. people in the, um, in, in the audience. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this one, because I think this one's in my, in my wheelhouse. Um, Washington is looking to name our new NHL franchise. This is from, it's from Deep Kraken. Uh, it looks like they're leaning towards the team name of either the Totems or the Sockeyes, um, which sounds more menacing to a Canuck. And, and, and I'll, I'll let you know that the question, the Canuck part is capitalized. So I think they mean a Vancouver Canuck, not just like a, a colloquial term for a Canadian. Canadian. So I... I will answer this not as a Vancouver Canuck because I don't really like that team, um, but I will answer it as a small C Canuck. Uh, I would go with the Totems. I think it's. I don't think it's menacing, but I think it, the logo options are way way cooler. Um, and uh, so so that's where uh, that, I, we had to get some hockey content uh, in here on hockey safety talk. So. Yeah, I, I I think I would have gone with Sockeye. Well, there you go. That's where. That's where. That's where we differ. So, so yeah. speaking of Canucks, um, have you ever heard of Captain Canuck? Oh, I've heard of Captain Canuck. Okay. 
Captain Canuck, I, I'm looking on your screen, which I don't even get to do ever. There's a comic book of Captain Canuck. Um, I, I own that comic Aww. book. Yeah, it's probably from the earlier mid '80s or somewhere around. 1975. There. Yeah, well, I've got. I actually have that. That one. Captain, I think I've got four or five uh, Captain issues Canuck, of Captain, Captain Canuck. Canuck number one. Captain Canuck. I wonder what it's issue worth. One. Anybody? Uh, it's, mine's not like overshoot? on a. It's not on a backboard or in a bag. You, or anything. Let, let, we, I don't think we talked about this. Okay. As a kid, did you collect comics? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I collected comics. Oh. I still have months. What? A lot of months. So, I, I don't know if I have Captain Canuck. So my my comics have have somewhat recently gone missing, and I'm not sure where they are. Like, should you ask your wife? Well, no. So we've had this conversation. <laughs> she believes that at one point, I say somewhat recently. It's before we had kids, and a, lot, a decade ago, or when we were moving from an apartment to a house, that they were moved to my parents' house, and that they reside somewhere there. Um, and every time I go to my parents' house, I, I want to, like, rifle through their things to find my box of comics. Kind of like, a, you know, like one of those white boxes full of, full of comic books. I, I was an uh, Uncanny X-Men and uh, New Teen Titans. Those are, those are mine. Some Wolverine. Um, and uh, I don't know where they are. And so I'm trying to – it's a mystery. It's a, we, we should do a podcast series on searching for my comic books. Yeah, so I I know I know exactly where my comic books are. They are in the attic of my house, um, which is um, probably the second worst place you could store your right. comics. The worst would be in the basement where they can get wet, or but they would be cool. Um, but they're in the attic of my of my house, probably getting Bacon. Uh, warm right now. Yeah. So and while we're sharing um, uh, historical perspectives, um, so when I was a kid, um, I was a member of the Comic Book Club of Ithaca, and I and they have a website, Ben, and it says. The Comic Book Club of Ithaca is the oldest active comic book fan club in the United States. Whoa. Since its inception in February 1975, the club has held 43 comic book conventions and numerous smaller shows. And I was involved in many of those early comic book conventions. So Twi you were one of, the, one of the early members of one of the oldest comic yeah. book clubs in the, in the world. Well, in the, in the United States. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Um, so, uh, why don't we, why don't we like open things up? Uh, we've been, we've been talking for a little bit here, but there are, uh, many, many people, as Don said, thousands of people here in the room, um, many lined up, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 deep at a microphone, just waiting. They're, they're us, fighting it out. They're, they're fighting it out now. Hey, calm yeah. down guys. Calm down. Yeah, calm yeah. Down. So do you all get your chance? We're not going anywhere until all your questions are answered. Uh, so anyway, we'll, uh, We'll open this up to uh, to uh, listener in the room questions, and uh, um, I already I already told people we had we had dinner with a, a few of our our friends uh, here, and I already said that how I'm going to answer all the questions is hey that's a great question, um, and I won't answer it. I'm just going to answer something else that I want to answer. So no, I'm joking. So uh, yeah, so uh, you go. So here's the rule of uh, of asking questions on food safety talk. You can very much give yourself your own like deep related name. Um, or you can give your own real name. Uh, we don't. We don't really care. But know that if you give your own real name, that someone who listens might know you and will know that you're here. So if you like lied to someone to come here and you're supposed to be somewhere else, that this this will be on the internet. Cool. Uh, good <laughs> advice. Um, fan of the podcast. I may have gone by Deep Kimchi in the past. Deep Kimchi. So, um, I do have two questions. Um, One's kind of a technical, one's fun. 
uh, which one would you prefer? Uh, dealer's choice. B business in the front, party in the back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go with the fun question. So uh, sour beers, which I'm a fan of, um, are pretty similar to kombucha. They have some crossovers, but they're definitely different products. I was just wondering what your guys' take were and, um, on a food safety aspect, what your thoughts were. Yeah, so um, so we had, a, we had a question about um, fruit-infused sour beers a, a, a while ago, and um, it's something that I, I didn't know much about the process until we, we had that question and did a little um, digging on it, and just sort of the way that um, some of the flavors in sour beers can be uh, put in at different points in the brewing process, and um, ultimately with with beer and and with you know many of our our alcoholic drinks, we have some level of microbiological control just based on on alcohol content, and so that that helps. Um, it, it's not something that I would I, I, I would um, I'm concerned about, and mainly because of the the delicacy of beer making and the fermentation process that having um, some level of contamination there is likely to give you, regardless of whether it's a pathogen or other, like pathogen gets introduced with a whole bunch of other things, because they're usually not just alone, um, would lead to a problem in the brewing in, in the brewing process. And when we had a couple of folks that we know who do home brewing, that was kind of their, their take on it as well, is that um, if you get to a point where there's a beer that tastes like a beer, that you're looking for at the end, then you've probably controlled for pathogens pretty well all the way along because the spoilage would, would out, uh, out compete it. Good, good answer. All right. Was that the fun one or was that the that was yeah, technical was one? Kind of the fun one. Yeah, yeah, um, okay, good. I just want to know which one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, technical one is with celery powder. So it's a, kind of a newer um, use with somewhat curing. I'm doing Yep, yep. Fingers. Richard Fingers. Um, fingers. Richard Fingers <laughs> yeah, is Richard here. Fingers. He's here in the audience. Um, with many UCA products, it's labeled uncured mm -hmm. in the stores, and I just wonder what your thoughts were with the product because it seems kind of new. Yeah, that's bullshit. Oh. <laughs> that, that's, that's, <laughs> fix that in post. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's baloney. Um, if it has celery power in it, powder in it, that's what's giving it nitrites. It should, in my opinion, as a not a toxicologist, but as a, just an educated food scientist, that's mislabeling, right? You can say celery powder, natural form of nitrites, that's fine. But but to say it's nitrate-free or, or uh, uncured, uncured is, is just wrong. Yeah. It's just flat-out wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I talked to um, a meat scientist specialist about this a while ago because he brought it up um, when we were doing uh, – he invited me in to do a little bit of passive invariant stuff as part of a, a class on, on charcuterie. And, and he essentially said the same thing, but it's, it's like a, a, a regulatory loophole, right? Like, so, so it, it allows you to, to put that in as uncured. It's a really probably great marketing, marketing tool. The product itself is the same. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't change what you get, uh, but, it, but it sure sounds cooler, right? Like, you know, I, I definitely, um, cured meat's the problem. Uncured meat is the cure. Is that... Good one, right? Thanks. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question, and it's a it's one of these things that um, when when you look at how our regulations are are built, um, often individuals and, and companies can look for ways around the labeling aspects, and and, uh, and and it's not a 
It's it's the same it's the same product. It's just it's just good marketing. Or bad marketing. Depending on your perspective. Thanks for your response. Yeah. Thanks to Deep Kimchi. So um, I'm Deep Pacific. I have a question. All right. I'm looking at um, fish, particularly salmon that's vacuum packaged in one of those 10k OTR bags, so those mm -hmm, oxygen mm -hmm. transmission rates. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Does that qualify for HACCP, or is that no longer a risk for sea botulinum? Ooh, that's a good question. Okay, so um, so what Deep Pacific's talking about uh, for the for the folks that are not not super into the to the world that we're in is um, we're often looking for solutions to vacuum seal and vacuum pack proteins. Um, and, and we do it in lots of different places. One spot that we do it, that as a consumer you might be familiar with it, is in uh, frozen, frozen food packages. You can get a lot of, uh, you know, purchase frozen, uh, frozen fish and, and other frozen proteins that have been vacuum sealed. It makes the um, transport of it easier. We see it a lot in retail settings. Um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is the fact that I vacuum seal something, it's gonna preserve the freshness of that, of that product. And so Deep Pacific's asking about a specific type of bag that's called um, OTR 10K. And it's- Would you like to know the definition? Yeah. Okay, so, so 10K OTR bags are bags that have a measured oxygen transmission rate, that's the OTR, greater than 10,000 cc's, STP, um, per 24 hours per meter per atmosphere, according to guidelines listed in the ASTM D3958, also known as TSR number 28869. That's my favorite now, TSR. I, I, I've, been, I've been practicing. I, I yeah. had that memorized, Ben. That's I don't good. know if you noticed that. I had it memorized. I didn't have to read it off my computer screen after Googling. Not at all. Not I at just, all. I memorized that definition. Yeah, yeah. So, so. Um, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. So, uh, this OTR complies with the FDA guidance published in Fish and Fisheries Product Hazards and Controls Guidance, third edition, June 20, 2001. It's been since updated, but I imagine it's still in compliance. The compliance policy stated in FDA's import alert number 16-125. So, the idea here. Well, you, go ahead. So, now that I've given the background, go yeah. ahead and explain it. Yeah. No, no, no. And um, and so. Uh, I think, I, I don't know if the only manufacturer of this product is Cryovac. Uh, but it's the Cryovac one that, and Sealed Air, but aren't see, they the same They're company? the same now. Yeah. They're the same people. Um, and so, so they, yeah, they, they market this, this product, as, as you said, as being complying with this guidance. And then I went and looked at what the guidance is. Um, and so I'm going to read from Import Alert um, 16125. Uh, I'd love to do. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, so, and this says, FDA considers packaging with an oxygen transmission rate, OTR, of 10,000 cc near square 24 hours of 24 c uh, or higher to be oxygen permeable packaging for fishery products and is not considered reduced oxygen packaging. And so sort of in, in the um, you know, FDA's uh, language here. And so what, why someone, we, we're getting real inside here, why would someone use this um, is to get the benefits of vacuum packaging fish without needing to go through the process of uh, a variance and, and a HACCP plan. Um, and fish are special for what we want to do with them, uh, which is hold them fresh, uh, refrigerated, because there's a specific type of Clostridium botulinum that leads to botulism that is more likely to 
appear in uh, brackish water where we would get fish. And, and so that, that Clostridium botulinum likes to live and grow at cooler temperatures, cooler than refrigeration. It's far down, I think, at 34, maybe, 33, something like that, degrees. Um, and so, so all of that being said, why would someone use this, this bag? It's so they can refrigerate salmon, other fish, seafood, um, hold it under vacuum because that's going to preserve the quality of it. But then this allows for oxygen transmission through transfer through the, uh, through the package so we don't create a botulism uh, situation. So the question is, does it require um, uh, a, 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 you know, a HACCP plan or a variance? Um, it, for the most part, no, uh, it, it doesn't because it's not considered to be reduced oxygen packaging. There are some interpretations uh, out there, and, and we've heard from, from some folks uh, in other states where, where they don't uh, um, uh, sort of look at it the same way. Um, but there's a, there's a like, promise, a caveat to this whole thing, which is if you're going to use this type of packaging, you, you have to only use it with fish. There can't be any marinade, there can't be any oil, can't be any uh, herbs, anything that, that would be there that, that would plug up um, the, the pores on this, uh, on this seal and stop that transfer of oxygen. So what I, what I thought you were going to say is that it stops botulism. Um, does, it, does it? Well, I, I mean, mean, it allows for oxygen transfer. So, so what I want to know is, has somebody done challenge studies to prove, right? Because we, we I mean... I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, so I've been, I'm, I've been Googling here as you've been talking. I did find an article by uh, several people that we know. Uh, Mike Yankee, Susan Sumner, Renee Boyer, Cameron Hackney um, are all people. Well, we know who, them. Who, we, I, who I know, uh, and you know too, um, uh, entitled uh, The Role of Packaging Type on Shelf Life of Fresh Crab Meat. Um, but that, when I Googled, when I did a Google Scholar search for 10K OTR botulism, that was the only article I found. So what, what FDA says in this, and so, yeah. I'll, send me a link. Yeah, I'll send, send me a yeah, link's coming, link's coming, um, is uh, this. And it's not that it stops botulism, but it says that uh, oxygen permeable packaging should provide a sufficient exchange of oxygen to allow naturally occurring aerobic spoilage organisms on the fishery product to grow and spoil the product before Clostridium botulinum toxin is produced under moderate abuse temperatures. So that's the that's the approach. Yeah, I, I yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm 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 of a, a couple of minds about this. I think that the risks from ROP are probably overstated. It's a theoretical risk. We see a lot of uh, ROP, and we don't see a lot of botulism from it. Um, well, and. I mean, have we ever seen any botulism from that? Uh, except in a laboratory, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't. Um, and so the question would be, so if this is a way for people to get around it, I, I guess I'm fine with that. But I, I don't know. The whole, the whole thing, it just it t seems to me like it, we really haven't thought it through. So, but yeah, I don't know. I, this, is, this is one of those conundrums, right, where the risk is, maybe the actual risk is low, um, but, but the way around the risk, I'm not sure what it's doing to actually mitigate that risk, and that, I guess that's what that's what bothers me. Yeah, does yeah, that makes okay. sense. It, yeah, yeah, it yeah. does. It does. So, um, yeah. So good. I mean, that's a, and, and I think here's the here's the real practical aspect, right? Is in many situations in a in a retail setting, someone wants to use. They want to do this. They want to do it for the for the reasons that I described. That it really preserves the fish. 
but they can't keep their walk-in cooler below, you know, 30, 38, 36, whatever, whatever it is um, for this growth. And 38, 36, 36 whatever, whatever it takes. takes. Yeah, I knew that's what you were going to say. Uh, and so, so, all right, how do I store this in, uh, below 41, which is what I can keep my cooler to? Uh, and and I, I think this has been the way that, um, that FDA has, has allowed people to do that. Uh, but, but in, I mean, this is something that we talk about all the time. Does this, does it demonstrate, does it, um, is it a fail-safe way to, to, to um, avoid botulism? No. Does it reduce the risk of botulism? It sure sounds like it does, uh, based on the, the fact that spoilage would, would happen prior to. But, but the whole idea, I mean, having, having done work, not, not with, well, we've done work with bot, but, but in this particular case, we've done work with listeria and spoilage organisms and trying to build mathematical models that will let you mm -hmm. predict risk, I can tell you it's damn tricky, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime, even, even in a simple laboratory system where you have a, a sterile environment and you have two cultures and you're trying to determine whether one culture will outcompete the other, um, it's, really, it's, that's, it's really tricky. It's not, it's not at all straightforward. I mean, if you really, really load up the spoilage organism, yeah, it'll always work, but, but based on natural levels, and, then, and we don't you know, fluctuations in the natural levels of the spoilage organisms, fluctuations in the levels of CBOT, um, you know, I just, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I, it, just, it just bugs me. Yeah, well, and, and I, think that's, I think that's valid. Um, uh, so this is, you know, it's kind of one for the, for the seafood hazard guide, hazards guide uh, folks, and and you know, I'll note from the link that I sent you that we'll have in show notes, um, NACMIF looked at this back in, in 1992, um, looked and, and sort of laid out uh, specific temperatures. You know, they, they didn't really look at um, the aspect of uh, uh, oxygen permeability uh, for it. So so maybe so so what? Let's let's fast forward a little bit to. Say we do have an illness or a set of illnesses, botulism that's associated with this. Now that probably starts us down the road of reevaluating it, and how much of this product's out there, you know, don't know. Like, what, what's our, what, what's the um, exposure risk? The fact that we might have this. I don't. I. I it may be one of those things that, um, that just on a on a numbers side of things, we may never see any, you know, any illnesses from this to make us look at it in, the, in that you know reevaluate. Yeah, and, and while we're talking about botulism in time and temperature, we, we should definitely plug, I don't think either of them listen, but we should plug the uh, Skinner-Larkin model, ah. uh, which is the definitive model for uh, conservative prediction time to Clostridium botulinum toxin formation for use with time temperature indicators to ensure the safety of foods. We, uh, I love those guys. I love Skinner-Larkin. Yeah. Skinner Say that. We, we do actually know those guys. Is that like Slater-Kinney? It's that like Slater-Kinney, yeah. So Skinner-Larkin's my, my favorite grunge band. Show, show title. Uh, other any any other questions uh, from folks uh, folks here in the audience? All right. Um, this is the delivery. The French fries were delicious. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, Don, you mentioned um, being on the committee for CSP and guidance around third party delivery, and I'm curious how that conversation is evolving. Of suggestions for both the retail side and guidance on how they can play their part, and then also for the actual third-party platforms and how they can play their part and what their role would be. Well, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Um, no, uh, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and I have to say that it, this is a t 
ton of work, and it's a massive committee, um, both the voting members and the ad hoc non-voting members. But I am, I am really, I'm really pleased the way everybody is stepping up and working really hard. And we are, and it really is a true CFTP committee, right? We have academics, we have industry people, uh, both from the third-party uh, delivery companies, from the mail order companies, and from traditional retailers. Uh, people that use the, the third-party delivery services, uh, people that compete with, you know, the Amazon Freshes of the world, right? Uh, supermarkets, restaurants, um, you know, the whole the whole range of people. And I'm re I'm really impressed with how hard everyone is working and how we're all really trying to to focus on food safety, right? As as I I will often say, you know, the bacteria don't care, right? They they don't care what the environment is, they don't care whether it's a third party delivery or your local pizza place or whether it's you know a Blue Apron package or an Amazon package or, or whether it's me bringing the food home from, from my grocery store, right? They're gonna do what they're gonna do. And so, um, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but 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 the guidance is really, is, is we realize, I think all of us, that, that everyone has a role to play and we, we all, at the end of the day, we want safe food and we want to create guidance that will help us all do that. The only, I'm not part of this uh, committee, but I'm going to like uh, try and jump in a little bit on this. One of the things that um, that I think about from the area that I focus on is you, we have we have to start with some uh, some level of agreed upon best practices, right? Like that's that's the goal of the, of the committee. Um, it just like when it comes to HACCP plans in, in retail, what I'm really interested in is how do you get to like the gig economy players and and what's the what does that look like and, and how do you how would you even verify it and that kind of stuff so so but we can't we can't get there like you know it's we can't get there yet until we come up with all right well, let's agree upon where we want to start with these things and then and then evaluate that that next step but um, it's yeah it, it, it it's a it's an interesting landscape and I think it's something that we haven't in the food industry, we really haven't dealt with it in a way like if we look back in how food has been produced and transported. This is it's a it's a different model. I mean, that's the that's the beauty of it, and, and we don't have a lot to go on on what's the best way to um, to fix it, other than things like pizza delivery. And you know, and Don's done done some work looking at at that um, at heat and and time in in that delivery system. But but take you know. With pizza delivery, you've got a specific type of food in a specific type of container. When, when we look at um, other delivery systems, whether it's like DoorDash or Blue Apron or whatever, not to name drop everybody on this, but um, it, it, you've got a lot of variability. Right. And, and But can you cook a pizza with a pizza pan? We, uh, did we talk I, about that? We did. We talked about it. And uh, um, <laughs> the, answer is no. the, answer, the answer from Squirrel Chomp is um, you can... You can cook a pizza with a bunch of pizzas if you want the target temperature of the target pizza to be, it's going to be cooler than the pizzas you're cooking it with. So some of them you're going to have to throw out. And, and, she's, and she's a chemist. She she's a chemist. She's she knows thermodynamics. But, you know, so, so it's, it, it's funny um, talking about this, this uh, CFP committee um, because I think that we're doing good work and we're writing good guidance. But the, the big question at the end of the day, which is not the charge of the committee, is how do we regulate? Yes. And that, that is clearly outside the scope, right? That is, that is that there was an AFTO committee uh, that was meeting about this. They gave 
some they had questions for FDA. FDA is deliberating as FDA does, um, and and I'm just I'm not sure how we're going to regulate them. But but at least in the meantime, at least we'll have guidance. Well, and and I think the it, part of your question is how we regulate them, and the second part is who regulates them, right? Like I think that's what. Oh well, yeah, how yeah, how uh, would include who? Right? Yeah, like is it is this a local regulation? How do you do stuff where people are transporting food across? Jurisdiction lines, uh, what, yeah, all, all of it. What does the transport look like? Like, yeah, it's it, it's like you said, we can come up with these um, with best practices, but but how do we how do we make it actually happen? In implementation. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. We really we, we had a, a roundtable in Louisville, and and Louisville is uh, is in Kentucky. I don't know if you know that, but it's right across the river from another state. Yeah, Indiana. Indiana. I went to Thank Indiana. Um, I, not on not on purpose. My Uber driver <laughs> took me there because he got lost because he lives there. And and I don't I don't live there. And I thought I'm not sure we're supposed to go across this bridge. Uh, and he goes, Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. And then we just turned around. Anyway, but but the question is, so if I if I order uh, via a third party delivery uh -huh. company, and I'm in Louisville, and I order from a restaurant in Indiana, does that mean FDA has jurisdiction? I think we got I, interstate commerce happening. I think it's interstate commerce. Yeah. So anyway, yep. great question. Other other questions? We got uh, we got a couple more. We got lots of time. All right. Okay, I, I'm, um, Thanks. Um, I'm Kim, and I just have a question from the standpoint of, um, so I'm a regulator, and I had someone um, rip into me the other day about why their fresh-squeezed lemonade needed to be have a permit. It was not exempt from permit. And I, you know, I just did the best I could to explain why. But I'd like to hear your rendition of why. Oh, I don't know. So, so okay, so before you can give the mic up, because we have more questions about this. So was was this fresh squeezed lemonade like in a lemonade stand in someone's neighborhood? He was, was it? Gonna, he was going to do a temporary event. Temporary event, okay. Yes. We're selling this lemonade for? Yes, doing this lemonade, he was adding water and sugar. And he was putting this through some type of blender. Okay. And would it, is this a different question if it was like my, my 10 year old kid in the lemonade stand at the side of the road? Well, your, your kid on the lemonade stand is going to be doing dry powder, right? Mixing it with water. I, maybe. I don't know what he's on the kid. Seriously, he's only picture. a kid. I don't know what kind of drugs he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what is, what do you know? I'm not. I'm. I'm like three. I'm three hours away. Uh, do I yeah. need to go find your ten-year-old and take those bag of Doritos away? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so. So it's. So it's a different. Again. So it's a different question if it's dry powder versus versus fresh. And this may be a regulatory nuance of of Washington State. Um, what? I'm just more asking. Like, if I was to give this person a scientific reason, why? I know. I, I kind of know the regulatory aspect. Okay. So a scientific reason why there's a regulation? Yeah. No. no. Why? Uh, why they need to focus on yeah, what, uh, risk what, reduction exactly. in fresh? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I I'm not sure that you do. I mean, again, it's there. There's risk, and then there and, and there's risk in science, and then there's regulation. As, as my friend from the FDA says, one of the things I have to do when I walk in the 
front door in the morning is take my common sense up and hang it on a hook. Yeah. And I can have that back when I leave at the end of the we day. The sure. So, um, so I mean, I, I suppose any food has risk, right? Um, and so lemonade has risk, but but it's probably risk from the person making the lemonade, you know, vomiting into the pitcher before they make it and, and infecting it with norovirus, right? Um, but it's not. It's that lemonade is a quite a low risk food. Yeah. Right. Um, so I w would I worry about it? No. But is it subject to regulation? Well, I mean, there's a, in, in New Jersey, you can't process food without a triple sink, right? Um, what does a triple sink have to do with food safety? Well, I guess wash, rinse, and sanitize. Um, but really, what the triple sink rule is, and that's just my name for it, um, uh, it just stops people from being able to process foods in their home. Because most people don't have a, kitchen, uh, a triple sink and don't want to put one in their home, right? And so it's more, it's more just a way of you know, controlling the riffraff rather than really managing safety in any, in any direct scientific way. Yeah, I, um, I was quickly Googling the, this one a little bit. Um, friend of the show, um, friend of the podcast, Michelle Danluck, who's actually, you might not know this, but she's been banned from listening to the podcast. Um, so if she's listening to this, she's, she's in trouble. It was, she was harassing Don and I at, at IAFT about something, and Don just banned her. So she's not allowed to listen anymore. Um, anyway, she published uh, some work uh, in earlier this year about survival of salmonella on lemon and lime slices. It got a little bit of coverage uh, and, and transfer. And so, so looking at the, the science, you know, scientific reason, if there was, and this is specific to salmonella, there's not a lot of research on this. Like there's, uh, there, we, we talked on the podcast and I'd written some stuff on Barflog a while ago looking at uh, bacterial survivability on lemons and, and the rind and, and thinking about how that then transfers into this lemonade that I'm making. So I'm trying to like go down that path. There, there wasn't a lot on pathogens. In fact, when people were looking at, she, she references some of this, when people looked at what contamination levels look like on the outside of a lemon, um, there, it, there wasn't a lot uh, there that, that to start with. So she inoculated limes and lemons with salmonella and then looked on whether you could take those slices and transfer it into... Um, into tea and into water, and um, there there is a there is a, a transfer. Um, it, it seems like there's some transfer when it comes to lemons, and it, there's not so much when it comes to limes. And that's first of all kind of a weird situation. It has to do with um, probably the phytochemicals that are uh, associated on the um, on, on the, the peel itself, um, but. That's one of the reasons to, to think about it, but that's only like, okay, if there's salmonella in here at, at the first place. What we don't know, as Don mentioned, is about like what I would be more concerned about is like norovirus on that being able to transfer in. And, and unfortunately, right now, I don't think we have really any data to, to say yes or no or, or sort of give a scientific just, uh, justification on, uh, on risk. So, yeah. Yeah. So, but it's... You bring up a question that is not unlike some of the the questions that 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 are out there, where we we haven't really asked the right research questions in the literature to answer that yet. And so I think we're 
we're trying to like pick things from lots of different areas and say, well, let's let let's in, in absence of doing doing uh, a, a study that's that's about this, um, let's look for indicators from other studies that might help us answer that. And and that even that process is you know, as Don kind of mentioned is, is flawed. Like we we're missing we've got gaps in, in any um, you know we're. To really answer the question, we need to do it in a in a really uh, systematic way. And so, unfortunately, I don't think there's a really good answer of like, here's why it's important. You just uh, want to support your ten year old. I understand. Yeah, I do. Well, and I just want him to like, truthfully, I just want him to start bringing in money. Um, but but get off the dry powder. But man. get off the dry that, powder, that, man. That'll kill you. Yeah, that stuff will kill you. Uh, no, I want I want him. He, he's just so expensive to have around that if if I could just offset those costs with things that he does. Um, I'd be happy now. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, you. If I can just ask, uh, this is Deep Pacific again. Deep Pacific, go, yeah. I, I, I still have a follow-up question with the fish. And so ah. Washington State is looking at modifying our state food rule to allow people, consumers, to request undercooked fresh cuts of fish. So in our state, um, we are you know, in a prime um, location to get fresh halibut, fresh uh, salmon that haven't been parasitically destroyed, so they are, have not been frozen. And our rule does require that they be fully cooked to 145 degrees for 15 seconds. And a lot of people though think that's overcooked, or chefs don't want to cook it to that temperature. And the rule does not allow it, even with a proper consumer advisory. And so we are looking at modifying the consumer advisory to allow for a uh, potential notification of a consumer for a parasitic risk, yeah. so they can order it on demand. I'd just I, like to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean. We're, I'm, I am a raw milk libertarian. I'm also a raw fish libertarian. If people want to eat it and they've been suitably advised about the risk, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, people should be able to eat what they want to eat, even if it's stupid and it'll make them sick, right? I mean, I, I, yeah. they, could, they could buy the fish and take it home and eat it raw, right? So if the restaurant and, – and the other thing is they could also go to the restaurant, see the advisory, acknowledge the advisory, eat the fish anyway, and then sue them. Because you can always sue somebody, right? So, I mean, in, in principle, uh, I'm, I'm fine with it, even though I think it's a bad idea, and I would never do it. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm with Don. I'm, I, I look at the consumer advisory, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, as you know something that probably isn't well communicated, it's not well understood, um, but we allow it from a regulatory standpoint to, to go on. We've got people that will order you know, consistently order undercooked um, other proteins. I'll, I'll put, you know, we'll throw pork, uh, um, chicken, and pol you know, poultry, and, and beef in, into this. And beef's probably the one that's consumed the most. Um, with a pathogen um, potential that's, that is in a different way, um, you know, parasite versus um, sugar toxin producing E. coli or salmonella, they're, they're, they're both bad. I would rather, I mean, this is a game of would you rather right now. Um, Don, would you rather have, would you rather get a parasite from uh, undercooked halibut or a uh, sugar toxin producing E. coli from beef? I don't think the question where you're getting it from matters, okay? So... Okay. Correct. Okay. Which parasite? What parasite and would you which, have? And which parasite and which strain of salmonella? No, and, uh, chicken, to 
we'll, we'll say it's uh, shigatoxin producing. Let's go with which, an 0157. Which, which one? Oh, 0157 H7. Which one? One of them. One of those. One, the, of the ones, the, 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 one of the bad ones. I want one of the bad ones. Versus, and I can pick any parasite I want? Yeah. I mean, I, you like, know, this. I'm not prepared for this. I need to go do some research. <laughs> I would find the, the wimpiest, most easy to treat parasite yeah. or the most easily treated E. coli. E. coli, yeah. Or, or, I, or given the choice of both of those or norovirus, I pick norovirus well, every time. Right? Yeah, true, true. And, and really the question isn't, I should, this is the, I've, I've phrased, I've really screwed up, would you rather here? Because um, really it's, would you rather be exposed to these? It's not, would you rather get sick from them? Um, it's, it's, would you rather be exposed to them and increase your risk that you're getting sick from it? And, and so, so for me, I, you know, I think we already do a lot of this and we allow it. I don't have, I wouldn't personally have a problem. It would be really hard to argue um, uh, that, um, that this should not be allowed with some level of consumer advisory with the caveat of consumer advisory suck and they don't really work. But we already do that with all these other foods that, that we have. So my suggestion for Washington State, because I'm here to give recommendations all of a sudden, uh, is uh, fix consumer advisories and make them better and then allow it with a, a more complete risk communication-based consumer advisory. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, we're, I think we're always in favor of more information, more better information. More better. Consumer. Yeah. All, all right. So this is porcupine. Oh. <laughs> I, I hope that gives you a, a hint about what my question will be about. So California recently started regulating the retail sale of home prepared foods, um, kind of above and beyond the typical cottage foods that we've seen before. As self-described food safety libertarians, <laughs> what are your thoughts about retail sale of home prepared foods, uh, things like tamales, casserole? Yeah, so um, you know, I, I think I think it's a similar, you know, a similar answer. I think this is again where our um, the need for support for the cottage food, you know, individual food industry come, comes into play. It's not good business making people sick. Um, my job in in North Carolina, and you know, folks here in Washington State and in California. Uh, our jobs as extension folks is to work with those businesses in the absence of regulation to do things in the safest possible way. And and one of the things that, that we, Don and I, I think have been really, um, we've talked about on the podcast quite a bit, um, regulation is a, it, no, no one's going to argue to take regulation away. We're not. But regulation is the, the bar of least acceptability. The foods that I choose to eat as a consumer when I go places, it's not just because it's a regulated industry. I really do, and I've, I've talked with others about this recently, I really shop at grocery stores, uh, uh, and this is the you know not normal part of my life. I shop at grocery stores of, uh, that, ha that employ people who I know that do a lot of good for food safety and really progressive around food safety regardless of whether they're open or not. Like, we have lots of regulated businesses that don't employ food safety all the time, but they're still, you know, regulated. There's a lot of, there, there are a lot of limitations in our, in our process. And so I think the, the situation of deregulating certain foods or allowing for the home production of foods has to come with a responsibility and a caveat that there's someone out there doing uh, training, 
public health help? And I don't know if even that, I, it's, it's hard to say where that responsibility lies. I can only speak on behalf of like my world of cooperative extension. That's kind of our, a place where we need to be. And, and I'll, I, I mentioned farmers markets um, early on and, and talked to, you know, mentioned a little bit in the class uh, this morning. I, I got really interested in farmers markets in North Carolina um, uh, soon after I moved to the state because I talked to a regulator. In our state, farmers market vendors are, um, they're regulated, but there's no process for inspection. There's not an inspector. They're regulated. They fall under the uh, jurisdiction of the um, Department of Agriculture. And uh, a regulator 10 years ago said, we, as a department, have had one inspection of a farmer's market in the last five years, and it was a complaint-based thing. And, and I, got really, I got really interested. And he, he told me this and said, I know that there are issues because I walk around a farmer's market with my regulator hat on, I know that our vendors are not doing things that I would want them to do, but we don't have the resources to do it. It's not part of our mandate. We have all these other things that we that take our time that are, are probably higher risk. So he came to, to me and said, can we work together to create a way to get education to farmer's market vendors, even though they're like technically regulated, but we're not going to do anything unless there's a, there's a complaint. So we built an extension program to do that, train a bunch of extension agents to go uh, to these to farmer's markets and train people about best practices. And we did evaluation before and after it. And, and to me, that's a, that's a way to address this, this situation. Um, it takes you know, resources on behalf of the state or, or, or whomever's, um, uh, whomever is interested in, in supporting it. But it doesn't always have to be um, an inspected process. The, do those tamales, are they any safer or less safe than something that is regulated? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, but uh, it, it, we kind of have to look at, at, at different partnerships that, that can help move that move that forward and, and be able to redistribute um, the resources that we're, um, that we're dedicating to or we're dedicating to, to the regulation of those, those products. What I, what I think is the worst thing that could happen is deregulate that and then take you know, a legislature that says, oh, you guys aren't doing that anymore? Okay, you, uh, let's take 20% of your budget away. Um, I'd rather those, those funds remain in, in food safety and let us focus on other things of, uh, of priority. I hope that answers your question. Right, right. And if, we, if we're going to have a risk-based system, we need to allocate resources according to risk. The problem that I was thinking of you know, as you were talking is we just don't have perfect knowledge about risk, right? Uh, and we are much more likely to see uh, an outbreak coming from a big company where a lot of people get food and some portion gets sick and it shows up on the CDC radar as an outbreak versus a small person that's making tamales that's maybe over the course of the year, they might make 10 people sick, but it's from different strains of salmonella and, um, you know, it never never shows up as an outbreak because they're all one-offs, right? And and we just don't we just don't know that, right? Like that's just something we just we just don't know. And so how do we how do we allocate risk in the face of uncertainty? Is well, we just do the best we can. But but there's just so yeah, it's it, there's just so many things that we just don't we just don't know about, and not I'm not sure that we'll ever know about it. But we just have to do the best we can with the resources we have. So, but it's it's and, and I think. That these problems 
we're only going to, I mean, think about all the things we've been talking about here. We've been talking about farmer's markets. We've been talking about home preparation of food. We've been talking about uh, third-party delivery and mail order, right? Food, the food, we're talking about raw milk. I mean, the food supply is changing, right? The way that we get our food is, is changing, and we've just got to do our, and at the same time, CDC is better at, better than ever before, but all the ways that the food supply is, is, is growing and changing are ways that the CDC maybe doesn't have a good handle on. And, and I was really impressed with a comment from Craig Hedberg at the, the roundtable on uh, meal order and third-party delivery, where he talks about, well, you know, you guys, if there's going to be an outbreak investigation, you need to be tracking information that we need when there's an outbreak. So we have to be knowledgeable to go in and get that information. And, and that, that was not something that had been on, on our list of things to deal with for the, for the, the document, the, the CSB document. And so we need to figure out a way to get that in there so that people start thinking about, well, okay, in the event that something does go wrong, how are we going to have the records that we need to help the epidemiologist sort it out? Right, right, right. One, one, other, one other thing that I was thinking about as, as you were talking um, is how, what, what we do in our, in our state around home um, processing of foods, which is, I don't know, it, you know, as I've talked about this around the country, I don't know how unique we are, but it's definitely not the norm in, in our um, in our region. Where in North Carolina, I can produce a whole bunch of foods in my home. You know, cottage food laws have been around like literally for decades um, in in our state. Um, I, I have one inspection ever. That's at the start. Do I have a facility where I can make these foods? And the, we have a bunch. You know, similar to the cottage food. Um, laws and the deregulation. There's a list of risky foods that I can't make in my home, and there are a list of, you know, semi-risky foods that I can make in my home, and there are a, a list of low-risk foods that I can make in my home. And in that inspection process, to, to me, from the outside, it does something at the start. It says, okay, what are you going to make? Can you do it in here? All right, you're on our list. We know, we know about you. But they will, they will never see another inspection uh, unless there's a complaint. And, and that's, a, that's an interesting, like, medium. It's not how we handle retail food at all. It's not how we handle food processing in the rest of our state. But, but at least got something like, here are the things that we would be concerned about from a regulatory standpoint. And maybe that's a, a way to start. It's not, it's not a, a it, it, for us it is a, it's a requirement, but maybe that's a, a place of, uh, of where to go with this in the absence of the regulation of saying, you know what, not going to be regulated, but, but we do have people that have technical ability that could come out and help you make a decision on what the best way to make this product is, um, and let's let's engage in that conversation as opposed to like, hey, everything is hands off. But there's got to be resources to do that. Like that's that's the that's the thing. And and we have resources to be able to say, okay, here's the range of possible cottage foods you can make. Let's divide these into risk tiers, right? So. Yeah, and it, I just I just found this just just now. You're familiar with this report, um, cottage food laws in the United States from law, Food Law and Policy Clinic, Harvard Law School. Yeah, yep, yeah, good, listen, good document. We'll yeah, we'll to... All right, gentleman from Bothell. Upset. Upset. Come on, come on. Yeah, I think I've already been given my name. I think I'm deep guy from Bothell. Yeah, but uh, and, and so and I can't really and so just before you ask your question because we don't have lo local knowledge. What I heard was deep guy from butthole, and I don't think that's what you <laughs> no, said. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is that like the the two that I get all the time is brothel, brothel, yeah, and exactly. uh, that's what I was thinking. 
<laughs> and it's spelled B-O-T-H-E-L-L, so Bothell. Oh, Bothell, yeah, yeah. Bot, all right, Bothell, so, got it. My question, I saw a talk from somebody who travels a lot and doesn't want to eat out all the time, and his talk was about some of the solutions that he's come up with for eating in hotel rooms and Airbnbs and stuff like that, and one of his big things is taking an immersion circulator and throwing it in his bag and cooking sous vide with basically fresh meat buying on site in whatever vessels available. And in a hotel room, that might be the ice bucket or the sink, or maybe you get a cheap styrofoam cooler. And sometimes he has a vacuum sealer, but sometimes he's just Ziploc bag and keeping the bag above the top. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts from a food safety standpoint on, let's call it gorilla sous vide? Gorilla sous vide. I'm, I'm all for it. The, like, based on, on the description. So think about what's happening with immersion circulator and sous vide. The vessel doesn't really matter. The food's not going to be touching that. I've got this, um, if, if I'm doing it in a way that I can uh, seal that bag. So I'm making an assumption that, that the integrity of the Ziploc bag, in, in some sense, is gonna gonna hold up. So my zipper doesn't doesn't my zipper doesn't open up is like a terrible phrasing thing to say. The zip whatever doesn't doesn't open up. Um, so as long as I can as long as you can uh, maintain the integrity of it, the vessel itself's not not really gonna matter. Um, it's gonna lose more heat if it's not you know able to insulate. So it might take longer. It might not be. But the immersion circulators are pretty good at adjusting for for temperature. So. My my thoughts like go gorilla sous vide um, and and go for it. That's that's a pretty you know pretty cool approach. And my my first thought was not food safety risk, but like health and safety, right? Like he's going to electrocute himself. He's going to melt the <laughs> melt the plastic cooler. He's going to start a fire. Like th those yeah, are my yeah. concerns, right? But if, but if the guy understands or the gal, the person understands sous vide and how it works, that that's fine. It, Seems like a lot of trouble to go to. I mean, <clears throat> I, I, but I, you know, I, I do, I do when I when I travel, I I am more careful about what I eat because I don't want to get sick when I'm not at home, right? I don't, I sure don't want to be sick on the road, and so I will, I will, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. I will, I will modify what I eat. Um, I am, I mean, I'm, I will bring a podcast microphone with me um, because sometimes you need a podcast microphone. Yep. Sometimes um, TSA I, asks you, "What? Why? Why is what's in your shoe?" Which is what they asked me on my way here because I put my microphone in the shoe of my carry-on. I, uh, I had I cut on my way to IAFP. Um, uh, I had my microphone packed in my bag and uh, went through uh, Terminal A in Newark, where it's that's kind of like the hick terminal. Like Terminal C, they yeah, see a there. lot of stuff. Terminal A, they don't they don't see as much weird stuff. <laughs> and so um, the the guy, the, the X-ray guy, flagged it and. So the, the woman that was that did the inspections she says, "Well, we were wondering what that was. Can I can I go show him the microphone?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." Go ahead. So now he knows what a microphone looks like. Um, uh, but you could just put an emergency circulator in there with it. But what I want to know yeah. is what does this the, what does the TSA person see when they see the emergency circulator? Yeah. Because that that looks pretty, pretty dangerous. What, well, one thing. So all right, I'm going to take Gorilla sous vide to the next step. One thing I would be worried about. Not this is more quality and palatability. So I've I've sous vide I've you know done sous vide a bunch. Um, I always have some sort of like sear or grill step afterwards to get some caramelization. Yeah. Uh oh, yeah. the microphone went away. Uh, and 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 so, um, 
so we need the microphone back. Uh, um, but so, so that part, so I'm cooking my ribeye in my immersion circulator in, in the ice bucket. I'm fine. But now what do I do for the caramelization? Because it's kind of gross. It's, kinda, you, it's a little bit know? gross. Yeah. So how did he handle that? Did he talk about that? Have you heard of a searzol? No. A searzol. S a r z a l l. Not a sawzall. No, that's a different thing. Not a sawzall. A searzol. Is an attachment that you can get for a little torch, propane torch, that was made by some chef for searing meat. It's a Kickstarter project. In case you were wondering. Oh my gosh! All right, so this is what he does. He's got a little searzol. So searzol. Okay. Again, I would health and safety, right? This guy's going to light the hotel room on fire. That's, I can that's, I can give you the link to this talk for your show notes. Yeah, please, yeah, please, please do, please. Yeah, do. yeah, yeah. we appreciate that. Is it so reading from the Searsall, uh, uh, Booker and Dax uh, makes a Searsall. Uh, reading from it, it's a, a blowtorch attachment uh, secured to the top of the blowtorch to recreate the perfect searing temperature without off-putting aromas that typically result when cooking with blowtorches. <laughs> How do you, but can't, you can't bring that on a plane. You can't bring pressurized gas for a blowtorch. I don't know, maybe plane, you got can you? I mean, No, I, but I, you can get it really easily at the store. Store, yeah. There you go. All right, uh, gorilla, gorilla sous vide's a go. I, I thought that he was maybe like taking the iron out and like flipping that upside down and just like dropping the steak on top of that, which I don't think is a good idea, but a sears all seems pretty good. <laughs> All right. Thanks for thanks for your question. Yeah. I I think that might be a show. That might be this. Yeah, that might be the show. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll we'll stick around if, if you guys have questions afterwards. But um, you know uh, we've been uh, we've been chatting for a while here. Um, so uh, we'll uh, for those of you who are uh, in the room, uh, we'll we'll post this up in the next couple of days. But thank you so much for asking such great questions and listening and coming to watch Don and I awkwardly sit beside each other and not look at each other and talk. Because honestly, it's it's not really that much. I don't think it's that much better than just waiting for the episode to come out and listen. But, <laughs> but we couldn't have done that. But we that appreciate episode, it. So yeah. thanks. Yeah. So thank you so much. <laughs>